Welcome to the Swaplix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who record episodes every couple of weeks together over the internet in three separate states. And then you will see in this feed alternating, there are episodes where three other friends sit down and record all in the same room in New Orleans. You know, we, we actually never talk about this, but I want to interrupt real quick, Brandon, to be like, to, to let you know, when I saw you last May, it actually was a very strange experience to hear your voice coming out of your face. <laughs> like, like to sit in a room with you and, you know, because you're, you're such a disembodied voice to me so much that like, I was like, oh, this is what he looks like. Right. I knew that because I know him personally and have met him. But like having a full on conversation in person was such a lovely experience. I think the thing is like, we've never met in person, which is always funny to me. Like, this is my That's friend. True. I don't know him. Wait, so it's preferable to be looking at me while I talk? I've never assumed that. Okay, we won't we won't give in to your denigrating fishing for no. compliments. Okay, we, we we're giving you compliments up front about how much we adore you. Don't yeah. <laughs> I'm actually here for a berating today, though, because what I was gonna say was that these two separate podcast crews do come together once a year for list making season. But we don't actually interact because that would be madness. No, you interact through math and through me having to wrangle everybody's separate lists uh, and syntaxes and ideas and try to synthesize them all into one list. And since the last time we recorded, Swampflix has posted the website-wide top 10 films of 2023. We usually spend about all of January talking about the best movies of the previous year. That period of time has come to a close. So final thoughts on the way out. What do you think about the top 10 films we selected for 2023? I always love our lists. And like, there's always things that I, things that are on it that I love that I've seen. And then things that I haven't seen where I'm like, I know I'd love this if I actually had watched it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm into it. I suppose I can't complain. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's rarely this much overlap between like my top 20 list and the top 10 list of everybody. You know, I think this actually might be the most where there's seven films that are in our top 10 that were on my list of my top 20. Because I think you and I usually go a little bit. I think Hannah, I think, had top 22, correct? Yeah, she just illustrates the first 10. Right. I. It does make me wonder if there is any, if there would be any point in trying to convince you into any point in floating the idea of convincing you into doing a negative vote. Like if there's ever a movie. Nope. Okay. That's too much math. Also, it's too much negativity. We are yeah. really into like championing stuff we like. So if a movie is on three people's lists, it qualifies as three people are vouching for it. It can be assumed that it is one of our favorite movies as a group. I don't think someone can naysay or veto a movie out of that. I, I wouldn't say veto, veto, just like cancel one out. But I, I actually, you know. You're right to tell me no. Uh, one of the movies that I'm going to talk about having watched since we last got together, I watched with a group of friends, and they were all giving it much lower reviews, even though they enjoyed it. Like, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd maybe give it two stars. I'm like, no, this is a three-star movie for me, even though I know it's, like, not objectively a very good movie. I enjoyed I it love three stars like worth. And you know one of my friends was like yeah but you always and you always give things very positive reviews and i'm like yeah that is kind of the swamp flicks like philosophy actually that's how part of how we all came together is that 
We just find it more interesting to like things than to not like things. All right, let me try to game out what you're really playing at here. Because I feel like if everyone in the group was given a downvote option, which is what you're asking for, that we might have downvoted Barbie, even though it was the only movie on all six of our lists, just to make sure that Barbie, the highest grossing film of 2023, was not the website-wide favorite for the best movie of the year as well. But I'm guessing that you personally would use that downvote to get rid of Infinity Pool and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, a movie you hated and a movie that you did not see. Yeah, I would not vote down a movie I didn't see. Uh, There are often movies. No, that's really? No, I I would not downvote a movie that I did not see. I forgot that you hated Infinity Infinity Pool. Pool. I did not hate it, but it wasn't one of my favorites. So Again, and when I did my sort of fake Oscars ballot, you know, I included the things that I thought were great in it. I just thought that as a total package, I, again, it just left me cold. Like, I would never vote down Turtles Mutant Mayhem because I didn't see it. I mean, there are a lot of times... You know, I would I, I we were just talking off mic about Deerskin and how I've never seen it, and that was one of the big movies of Swamp Flicks the year that that came out. That was the number one movie that year, and you said it does not exist. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've been I have confirmed its existence, but I still okay, haven't good. seen it with mine own Mark II eyeballs. But I will, I will. This is this is January. This is catch up time for me. But yeah, no, I am really happy with all of our choices. You know. Um, Except for the things that I continue to champion that that no one else watches, or if they do watch, they don't enjoy them as much. But I don't need everyone to agree with me. I'm happy just being correct. (laughs) I did follow up and watch every movie on your list. I I know, and you did. And I wish that you had loved Leonore and uh, The Cow Who Sang a Song into the Future as much as I did. And you didn't. And that's fine, because you gave them a chance. Very good movies. Wish I had seen them in a theater, especially The Cow Is Sang a Song, because it's a very like hypnotic, kind of like dreamy picture. I think it would have benefited from that environment, but I did really like it. I will say the two that like barely missed the list, I, I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, like the two that like were in contention that didn't make it were Todd Haynes's May December and also um, an alley favorite, Skinnamarink, which was very close to making the top 10 and did oh, not. yeah. I'm really just happy that Megan is here. Yeah, I'm so glad we all loved it that much because it is such a fun movie. <laughs> and I had so many concerns that because of like recency bias and everything and the fact that it came out like the first week of January 2023 would mean that most people wouldn't even think about it or consider but it for their list. I seen it until Thanksgiving, so. I'm so glad that you're like late coming to it has saved Megan from obscurity. Not that not being on our list is obscurity per se, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm really pleased that Smoking Causes Coughing is on here. I'm really pleased by Royal Hotel, which I loved a whole lot. Uh, Asteroid City. I, I, You know, I have no problem with this top five, like not even a little bit. Yeah, the top five are like movies that a lot of us rated very highly. The bottom five are more stuff that was lower, but like on a lot of lists. Except maybe Priscilla, which James and I were just really over the moon for and uh, helped get it higher up. Um, I think just a lot of people hadn't seen Priscilla. It had a very quiet theatrical release. Uh, But I love Sofia Coppola. I feel like I should have seen it because I do. I've liked every single one of her movies that I've seen, and I just have not watched enough of her. So I always forget how much I love her until I'm watching one of her movies again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 
Uh, Boomer's been saying a lot lately that Wes Anderson is underappreciated, and I think that's true. But I think These Sofia days, Coppola is, is even true. more underappreciated. Like I, I underappreciate Sofia Coppola. I forget that I love her so much. Uh, mostly because everyone likes to talk about Lost in Translation, which is her one movie that I do not Ugh. care about at all. <laughs> or complain about the high tops and Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Oh, God, what a boring take. I love Marie Antoinette. <laughs> that movie's yeah, so that's fun. one of her best. Uh... I, I will say, you know, Brianna, I would ask just for our listeners, I know that you'll probably post the link to like our full list with the blurbs, but maybe just for the people who are listening on maybe an off-site thing should we list our top 10 here yeah or? we should probably just say them aloud. that's enough conjecture i mean we, I, the only ones we haven't mentioned so far ennis main poor things that's it we've covered all the other ones yeah and yeah, yeah. those movies we've sang the praises for repeatedly yeah, yeah i mean ennis main was like a topic for us this podcast specifically yeah i was happy to see it on like other like people who weren't on our podcast uh were on the other squad liked it as well i was i was happy that um you didn't need to weaponize the podcast to get people to watch it the one thing that might have been a little different is if poor things was seen by more people before yes. voting it i think it would have been our number over. one <laughs> it, it would have been and we talked about that last time because you you implied that i could update my list and that it would upset these rankings but- but then I feel like we're going to match the Oscars again. So I kind of like Barbie. Well, the Oscars are going to nominate. I mean, they're going to award Oppenheimer for every category they can. You think so. Oppenheimer? You don't think Poor Things is going to gonna sweep it? I 100% think Oppenheimer is the only movie that matters to Academy voters right now. Yeah, probably. And it was not on our list, as uh, you pointed out in a text to us. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> was it on anybody's list? No, it wasn't sure on anybody's. Only Allie and I saw it. And uh, yeah. I don't think either of us were particularly enthusiastic about it. No, we we weren't. I like I said, I thought it was you know up there for Nolan, but that's not a high compliment for me because I don't really like his movies. I did love that for us. You know, whenever yeah. Brandon sent us the list, and I was like, we are so brave for not we like are. not a single one of us put Oppenheimer in our list. Like we are, we are true. Uh, or Killers of the Fo- Flower Moon. Right, like the holdovers was on a few people's lists, but that's the third yeah. movie that like has really won over like voting bodies this year. I was gonna say, I feel like that's the awards underdog kind of. Yeah, I'm I'm rooting for Divine Joy Randolph. Like I'm rooting for her really hard. She's been winning everything she's nominated for, so it's it's highly possible she will. Nice. Win it is, it, it. Yeah, it's been a very rewarding rooting for her. Um, and uh, speaking of rooting for stuff, I mean, if we're going to talk about the Oscars, like there has been a huge blow up about Barbie being under nominated, which I think is insane because uh, it's yeah. like got eight nominations. And like I said earlier, was the highest grossing film of the year. So it's kind of already been rewarded for being great. That's what the money is for. Yeah. Yeah. But I do like it being our number one just because like these types of um amalgamated awards do tend to look over comedies in particular and stuff that's kind of just fun and that that really was like a very satisfying populist mainstream hollywood filmmaking project and like it it really is like a beautiful film visually it's got a lot of great jokes Uh, i still smile thinking about it funny yeah (laughs) and and if you do think of like as this as a nomination of like the movie of the year I mean, there was really no more enthusiastic movie going as like a ritual oh, last year than Barbie. Yes. People dressed up. They had fun. Everybody was in pink. 
at the theater I went to. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, I sent y'all my Barbie box photo when when I went that night. Oh yeah. Once again, as much as I love poor things, I'm also like, but it was it was a Barbie here. Yeah. I mean the two are the two work very well in conversation conversation yes, with do. one another, which I think we might have yeah. even mentioned before. That like they both are about like you know uh, these women confronting reality uh, yes. as it is and learning about it. I I do appreciate like obviously I enjoyed Barbie a lot. I it's I think the only thing that I've rewatched already that was on my list that came out you know in the second half of the year. Clearly, I put it on my list. I was the one who wrote the positive review of it in the first place. I do appreciate that Poor Things doesn't have like a Chevy commercial in the middle. But, (laughs) you know, that's where we're at. I mean, I love America Ferreira. I always have. I always will. You know, I'm I'm happy for her. I'm okay with how things turned out on our list. Yeah, I always love our lists. They're always fun. Always always unique to us like they always have an us vibe which you know i like us so i'm biased maybe we like liking things that's our (laughs) motto i remember when you went to that um convention a while back brandon or maybe it wasn't a convention it was like a uh, film festival and people were talking about their podcasts and we didn't you weren't able to tell them like what the thesis of the swamp flicks podcast is oh yeah i don't have an elevator pitch i think it's just like (laughs) Uh, we like things. Yeah, that is really the the thesis. And we're swamp hags. Yeah, I, I would hope that we talk about like art and trash on the same level, and that we're not bringing any movie up to make fun of it, like or yeah. you know denigrate it. Like, definitely, there's movies that we don't like and we have talked about, but like, yeah, I, I think we we try to keep it positive because, like, what's the point of watching a movie? What's the point of watching movies? For- and talking about them yeah. if you're just hating them. I have no compunction to be like, I hate this movie and 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 make it clear. Like I I hated uh I did not care for Prince of Darkness. And I still to this day, when I think about the worst things that mankind has done, my barometer centers around Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera, which like <laughs> I still hate. It's been like five years and I hate it more every day. So, but the internet is full of caustic criticism. And, you know, that was such a big moneymaker for so long that, like, people with, you know, I'm not going to be, the state has forbidden me from making this a realistic diagnostic. So I will say, I'm saying this for parody purposes. I do think that people with, like, personality disorders really love watching angry critics. And I think that it's made everything worse. Like, you know, Nostalgia Critic and, and all an angry video game nerd and everyone who like marketed themselves on like having rants really made all of the discourse worse. Yeah. And I mean we are the antidote to that. Human brains have kind of a, a negativity bias. So it is good to just like break out of it. Except Infinity Pool. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, you had to bow to Mia Goth's almighty performance in that film, which really is one of the performances of the year. Out of control. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, you convinced me of that whenever I was talking about how much I didn't enjoy it when I first saw it. And you were like, but what about Mia Goth? And you were right. Okay, if you do want to know what order those 10 movies were in, go to SwampFlix.com. It's not a hard list to find. 
or follow us on Letterboxd. I never say that out loud. Wow. <laughs> like and subscribe, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> Who are you? Um, all right. Let's leave 2023 in the past for a while. Uh, what have you been watching in your personal time? List free. Obligation free. So, as surprising as it might be, I don't always just read trash. Um and I've been working my way through a collection of uh, Philip K. Dick short stories. So I uh, watched for the first time ever, surprisingly, uh, Total Recall. Oh, what did you think? I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was a lot of fun. Very different from the short story, but that's okay. Because it's it's a lot more like action-packed and fun, I think. like The short story would be just very, like I don't know... The short story is hilarious, but it would not translate as well to a movie as it would like to Twilight Zone episode. I mean, sort of thing. Paul Verhoeven in general has like an active hostility towards a lot of uh, the work he adapts, <laughs> where he just like completely yeah. throws away the original intent to have fun. Instead. Which is fair enough. Uh, I mean, once again, the the original short story is a lot of fun. The movie's a lot of fun. Recommend both. Uh for people who haven't seen this, this is about a man who um, finds out that his memory has been tampered with when he wants to go to Mars and he visits, well, he visits this place that will implant memories of a vacation for you. And he really wants to go to Mars because he's been dreaming about Mars every night. And he buys this Martian vacation memory package and like in it there's like a girl and you know, of course, he's been thinking about this lady all the time that he believes doesn't exist, first off. Uh, yeah, and so uh, he finds out through uh, what they call a schizoid break in the like weird memory machine that uh, he has been to Mars and a big old conspiracy unfolds. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is the main character and... I have such a soft spot for Schwarzenegger movies. Um, and I know, Brandon, you, you're that way as well. Like you, you watch Schwarzenegger movies on your birthday, right? Yeah, like, that's a gift to myself every year. Yeah. Last year I watched yeah. uh, Barbie and Last Action Hero on the same day. And I came oh, up with this like amazing. theory about how they're the same movie. They kind of are. You're <laughs> right. I, I believe I wrote an article called I'm an Arnie girl in an Arnie world uh, to commemorate the occasion. If you're interested, that's amazing. <laughs> it was a good time. But yeah, so I, I have a big uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger soft spot, um, partially because I love the Terminator movies, even the bad ones. So yeah, I, I don't know. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, definitely. I think actually maybe one of his best performances. So yeah, I, I don't know. That one's great. I also, um, due to my uh, short story binge, watched, this is a rewatch, because um, I hadn't seen it since it was in theaters, uh, Minority Report. Great which movie. I, yeah. I don't know, I didn't enjoy it as much. Oh. As, oh I, I love Mean Regal. Spielberg. Uh, yeah, like, Mean Spielberg's fun and all that, but, like, I don't know. I guess I was just thinking, like, the whole time, like, this is the same aesthetic as AI, and AI is so much better. And that's not to say, like, I hated it. I just, you know, like, there are a lot of things that I really liked about it. And I thought the action sequences, of course, were cool and great. Because, I mean, how can you have, like, action sequences with Tom Cruise and not make them look awesome? But, yeah, I mean, I thought it was just all right, I guess is what I'm saying. 
So Minority Report, uh, there's this uh, bureau, this police bureau that um, targets murders before they start, before they happen, with uh, some precogs. It's called the Pre-Crime Unit, appropriately enough. And uh, yeah, Tom Cruise works at the Pre-Crime Unit. He's like really up top in there. And uh, he is a suspect for murder. Like his name comes up while he's there. And so then he goes on the run and tries to figure out if he's been framed and if he was framed by who and why. And uh, yeah, it kind of functions as sort of a societal like statement about, you know, crime and stuff. But it also is like, I don't know what, Spielberg was going through at the time, but he was definitely like writing about family <laughs> and parenthood. I don't know. It was uh, going through a thing because we find out that Tom Cruise's son has been snatched and taken. And yeah, he torments children in like most of his movies. He does. And I kind of love how cruel I, he yeah, can I'm be, it, but... even though people think of him as being this like wholesome director. Oh, yeah. No, he can be so mean, especially to kids. Like an entire generation of children who had mental breakdowns during the screenings of E.T. So, well, that I mean, and like, even in this 2000s era, like you just, you already mentioned AI and I feel like War of the Worlds. War was, of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, yes, War later. of the Worlds. Yeah. So War of the Worlds was 05 and Minority Report was 2002. I just looked this up as we were talking about it. And Minority Report is so clearly like an immediate post 9-11 story about parenthood. A little yeah. bit because it's about crime and protecting your family. And then War of the Worlds is also very much like a 9-11 story because it's like, you know, um, the little girl, she's like, oh, is it the terrorists when the aliens first come? And they all end up covered in dust in a way that was like obviously very like visually inspired by the survivors of like Ground Zero, like the people who ran away covered in dust. And I do wonder if that's like the reason for this period is because of the darkness of that. Like it was present in all of our media. Like we can't pretend like it wasn't, but why it's so focused on parenthood rather than like the magic of adulthood in that era. I mean, he's always got like, like we were just saying, like he, he loves to torment children in his movies. And I think there's an element of like looking at parenthood in a lot of them. Yeah, I guess you're right. Close encounters and jaws both are about parents now that, uh, yeah. His most recent one was him like dealing with his parents' uh, messy relationship from when he was a kid. He's going directly to the source now. Warhorse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like I said, I enjoyed it. Um, I did not enjoy it as much as uh, Total Recall, and I'm not the person to be like, "Oh, the book is better," because I genuinely do not care about it so long as the adaptation is great. Um, but the short story is actually a lot better. So, uh, yeah, Boomer, what have you been uh, watching lately? Uh, I have most, I've, I've watched so many of those DC movies. I really am giving myself a really long lead with them in case I get sick of them or I need to take some time off. Uh, but I won't, I won't get into them really, other than to say that I have now watched uh, Under the Red Hood, which is great. We've talked about it before. And All-Star Superman, which I think is also like a really noteworthy one among uh, that genre. 
uh, or among that franchise rather. And I, I will say that the more of these that I write, the more I'm able to kind of get into some of the history of stuff, which has been fun. So uh, continue to look for that on your digital newsstand, a.k.a. Swampflix.com. Thank you. Um, <laughs> once per week. Uh, I also have three of the things that I've watched since we last spoke I wrote about. So I, I guess I'll start with the one that I didn't write about, but I believe is fairly well-beloved in this community, which is Earth Girls Are Easy from 1988. You know, I've only ever seen that in people's houses while there's like people chatting, you know, like it's the kind of movie uh, that like people just kind of throw on in the background and it's probably been like 15 or 20 years. I haven't like sat down and watched that thing all the way through. So, so earth girls are easy. It's on Tubi right now. And it was something that we were shocked that one of my friends who's just a couple of years younger than me had never seen uh, when we were telling him about it not terribly long ago. And I, I think part of what drives that surprise is that Earth Girls Are Easy is a movie that I remember being on Comedy Central like every afternoon for like a couple of summers. You know, it's like how Clue seemed mm -hmm. to always be on Comedy Central anytime you turned it on yes. when you were at your grandparents' house, you know, for like from like 1993 to 1998. Earth Girls Are Easy seemed to be on a lot as well. And I, this was actually. I realized while watching it the first time that I've sat down and watched it all the way through because I felt like I had seen it, but I had really only seen like the fame, the same five or six scenes over and over again on cable television. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's that like uh, yeah. Christmas story thing where you've seen the movie like yeah. in this cubist way over time, uh -huh. <laughs> just from like it being on TV randomly. Some movies are made for that, though. It's so weird how it is, but it's just true. I have to assume that it has something to do with how cheap this movie is to license, because that's what I often notice on Tubi is a lot of those movies that it seems like okay they have a, a big cast or they have like a very famous cast that will be a, gr a big draw if they air the movie on television like jeff goldblum gina davis even like jim carrey and damon wayans but because they were box office disasters like earth girls are easy the studios that own the rights to them license them very cheaply just to get a little bit of revenue to maybe like break even on like a, a lifetime scale and so I assume it was cheap to license in the 90s, and it must be cheap to license now because it's on Tubi. Um, for our listeners who have not seen this, Earth Girls Are Easy is a movie about Gina Davis, who is a nail tech uh, at a salon, and she is engaged to this doctor played by Charles Rocket. And she finds out that he's going to cheat on her, and so she throws him out, and then the very next day, a spaceship with three like very fuzzy, colorful aliens crash lands in her swimming pool. And she ends up giving them or assisting in giving them makeovers, which make them look like normal human men. And she falls in love with their leader, who is Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum is the lead alien, and the other two are Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey. Um, this movie was at least partially written by a woman named June Brown, who was like a sort of parody artist. In the 80s, she, you know, she made parody songs like uh, what I remember seeing on like I Love the 80s when I was younger was uh, Look Out, Everybody Run, Homecoming Queen Has Got a Gun. So she wrote the movie as kind of a vehicle for herself where she plays the woman who runs the salon. And that gives her the opportunity to do a bunch of like uh, silly song musical numbers. 
which I enjoyed. So y'all can go ahead and put another one, another check in the column from Musical that I thought was fun. Uh, it's pretty great. I really enjoy Earth Girls Are Easy. It's free on Tubi, so you have no excuse. Um, while we were on Tubi, after the movie ended, we were looking at uh, just kind of scrolling through, and it you know shows you what's leaving Tubi soon. And one of them was the movie I alluded to earlier that I you know gave a three star rating for my enjoyment, even if it's not objectively a very good movie. It's called Prince of Pennsylvania. Had either of you heard of this one? Nope. But I will never forget that haircut now that I looked at the Google images for it uh, when I was editing your review. It truly, uh, it, okay, it truly is a horrible haircut. And he has it for the <laughs> whole movie. And Ali, this is the one where I sent um, the screenshot of Keanu with his tongue out uh, to the group chat last week. Yeah. So this is a movie about a high school dropout named Rupert Marchetta. He's played by Keanu Reeves. His dad is Fred Ward. His mother is Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, he, his father works at the mine. His mother never wanted him to work at the mine. Um, he just has very different interests than the people in the town that he's in. And it's funny in that it makes him very relatable because you really want him to be able to like spread his wings and fly as like you know, this guy who's able to make contraptions and, and thinks differently, you know, from all of the people in his like rural town. But at the same time, he is very insufferable as a teenager. Like he plays the teenage insufferable, you know, want to be, uh, you know, the, the, the very full of himself thinks he's smarter than everybody else. Teenager. He plays that very well too. So you both like him and you're also like, yeah, I, I kind of have a, little sympathy for you in other ways but he gets involved with the this woman who runs the ice cream shop played by amy madigan and all of that stuff is great uh roger ebert had a really negative review of this one that was very funny i actually suggest you go and read it in its entirety it's one of his blistering uh screeds that um you know anytime you need to whip out like insult uh, the next time you get into a verbal disagreement, go stock up for Roger Ebert's blistering negative reviews. And, and this one has one. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff with the town folk. Like they're all really richly realized characters with a lot of depth to them and a lot of like strengths and weaknesses. And like, they all feel very much like real people, except then halfway through, it becomes like a kidnapping Looney Tunes plot where they're going to try, he's going to try and get money from his dad so that he can run away with this, you know, older hippie lady uh, by kidnapping his dad and holding him for ransom. And of course, it doesn't work like even a little bit. Um, it ends with like, you know, explosions in a mine. But it's, it's interspersed with a lot of very funny like scenes, like individual scenes. So there's some tonal whiplash to it, but also like some of the funniest shit that I've seen all, like, oh, it's just January, so I can't say all year, but in a while is in this movie. There's a scene where Fred Ward is tied up in a trailer and uh, one of his kidnappers has a, like a Freddy Krueger mask on and a trench coat. And in order to not speak so that he can identify the voice, this person communicates solely through like pre-written notes on paper plates. And it's the funniest thing. I, I actually fell out of my chair. Like I, I kind of fell out of my chair laughing at this. So Prince of Pennsylvania, it's leaving to be soon. It might already be gone when you hear this. Um, if you're just looking for a good time, just watch the prom scene and the kidnapping sequence. Um, but yeah, Prince of Pennsylvania. And then finally, I saw 
uh, two separate movies, both of them by the same director. I watched them not in chronological order from their release, but I watched Soy Cuba, also known as I Am Cuba, which is directed by Mikhail Kalatazov. Um, came out in originally in 1964, and then it was screened in the screened in the U.S. in the 90s. And I initially saw it, or initially became aware of it because someone was talking online about, quote unquote, the bus scene and how it should be mandatory viewing for a film student in the U.S. And at that time that I first read that, I tried to see where I could watch this movie. It was not available through my library. I could not find it anywhere online, either legally or illegally. And then it entered the discourse again last week or the week before when uh, Phil Miller decided to like you know talk shit about it even though it's like truly wonderful uh phil lord because criterion announced that they're putting out like a really nice new edition of it too i was gonna say isn't it on criterion it will be no. soon okay it will be soon and okay. it's currently on hoopla which is where i saw it it's beautiful it's amazing it's one of the most amazing movies that i have ever seen like mentioning it in the same podcast <laughs> as as like uh DC's animated all-star Superman does it such a disservice. Like this is this is something that deserves to be on a pedestal. It is so beautiful. It is so well done. It is so well executed. The way that everything is so perfectly integrated. You know, there's uh, the entire fourth segment just about has its musical leitmotif. Uh, it's like a uh, percussion line comes from the beat with which this farmer's wife is like crushing masa to make like tortillas for breakfast. This like repetitive noise that starts with her and just becomes part of the soundtrack. And that's only like one tiny little fraction of how much attention to detail there is. The tracking shots are amazing. I stood up in my apartment and clapped when this movie ended. I was very confused as I did it, but like when it came to an end, I actually stood and and just like did a little slow clap it's genuinely one of the most amazing movies that i have ever seen i cannot recommend it more highly sounds great uh and then after having seen that one it made me uh curious about his uh, the same director's previous film the cranes are flying from 57 which uh is on criterion so you can watch it there right now it is also very beautiful it's a great movie it's uh world war ii it's a film set in World War II about a woman whose fiance goes off to fight in uh, the Second World War, and she never loses hope that he's coming home, even though her own circumstances change, as well as those of the people around her, and the things that she's forced to do to survive, and the things that she has to live through. All, all of that is is really, it's beautiful. It won the Palme d'Or that year. Uh, so that is that's why it's ended up being better preserved than Soy Cuba, even though Soy Cuba came later. And also because the Russian propagandists who or the Soviet propagandists rather who funded uh Soy Cuba thought that uh Kalatazov had insufficiently denigrated capitalism because he made some of it look too like too much fun. Um there's nothing fun in the cranes are flying. There are moments of joy. It is very sad. But it's also very beautiful, and you can see sort of the genealogy of a lot of the more extreme camera work that would go into making Soy Cuba. 
um the cranes are flying it it has such beautiful like filmic language like the the way that it echoes certain shots and scenes before the war after the war starts as the war gets worse you know there's like a a certain square that the main character passes through and every time she passes through it it's a little bit more broken and a little bit more you know full of this like anti-tank you know those things where it's all the beams welded together So that like tanks can't push through. Yeah. You know, the she goes on this like walk with her fiance at the beginning of the movie, and as her fiance is like horrible cousin who's obsessed with her, uh, tries to woo her himself, he like pursues her through those same locations and they're like shot from the same angles. It's just a really interesting use of framing, of editing, of uh, you know, a movement. Both of these movies, the camera movement is really astonishing. I could not recommend either of them more. Uh, Soy Kuba is, is, I think, if you had to watch one, if you could only watch one, like you've been given a poison pill and you only have three hours and you can't watch both of them, Soy Kuba is the one to watch, but they're both worth your time. Um, yeah, really, really big fan now. I'm going to be watching a lot of Soviet propaganda this year, I feel like. <laughs> a good time but yeah that's that's it for me brandon what have you been watching well while you're out there watching the like already venerated classics that have been passed down through time i'm out in the trenches trying to find the new material that's worth remembering uh i've been watching a lot of trash it's january you know i've been going to the theater trying to keep up with new releases um I think I've only talked about Night Swim so far, which is the one about the haunted swimming pool. Oh, yeah. Infinity the haunted swim. swimming pool. Yes. <laughs> Infinity Swim. <laughs> I also just missed this movie called ISS that was like about Russians and Americans having like brutal knife and fist fights on an Ameri- on an um, international space station as nuclear war breaks out uh, on the Earth below. Uh, I missed that one, but it uh, looked interesting. I did see a few movies this January, though, um, and I don't want them to slip by. The Pod, you know, I want to do due diligence. I saw The Book of Clarence, which is a faith-based drama, but not of the God's Not Dead pure flicks variety. Um, It is a movie starring Lakeith Stanfield as the twin brother of Thomas the Apostle. Right. Uh, It's a weird movie. It's like kind of a sword and sandal biblical epic like it's kind of recalling stuff like ben-hur very deliberately like one of the very first scenes is a chariot race and lakeith stanfield plays this like cynical thinker atheist who is living at the same time as jesus but like doesn't believe the miracles and um basically is like oh this is a great grift i want to become a messiah too and starts like trying to replicate the Jesus playbook like simultaneously. And he goes through a lot of the same trials as Jesus. And it's a mostly black cast. I think all of the white actors play like Romans and they're basically like these like cop allegories to like modern life. So like there's scenes with like I basically mean, like Rome did a police state at some well, point. Well, they're basically so like, <laughs> you know, having like public executions of these like black actors outside of nightclubs and stuff. It's very literally like, tying biblical text and context to modern like news stories. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's like kind of a point there. And I guess there's like kind of a point of view in Lakeith Stanfield, like starting the movie as atheist. And by the end, 
becoming a believer in Christ. So like the movie definitely has an angle there, but it's just like so odd how sincere it is for a movie that opens with the image of Lakeith Stanfield being crucified, but he's not Jesus. And then later there, there, there are these other kind of like life of Brian style, like satirical moments, sort of like making fun of biblical narratives through this like modern subversion. But like, the movie's so weirdly sincere and sentimental at other points. It's not fully a comedy. It's not fully a drama. It's just an odd film. Like trying to read the intent of it was difficult to parse, which is not usually what you can say about like a faith-based movie in right. like, modern times. Yeah. There are some, but they're rare. Yeah, I would say like maybe Scorsese's Silence was the last movie i saw in theaters that was like oh this is like a christian narrative that like actually gave me something to think about and wasn't just telling me what to think you know yeah i mean the the, pro- the thing about it is that those movies are rarely profitable in the sense that like uh faith in america right now is one that like completely rejects doubt like it rejects doubt as part of the process of faith because it's been so commercialized and capitalized in the last 40 years. So if you want to make something that uh, challenges faith, it has to do so in a very cookie-cutter, white bread, Kirk Cameron fireproof kind of way, not in a like, you know, uh, something like what you're talking about. And you can tell even the distributor didn't know what to do with this. Like January is a dumping season for movies that are purchased by studios, and they're like, actually, I don't know how to market this. Or actually, I think this was a poor purchase. Um, I think this is the former category, not the latter. I think they bought this um, out of festivals last year and don't know how to position it. Where like, if they had more faith in the movie, it might have been saved for like Easter or something. But um, they they seem confused too. Uh, <laughs> I just dumped it in theaters with no context, and uh, I don't know. I kind of walked away, kind of bewildered, but impressed um, by the ambition. I guess I'm into that. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of be curious about your take on it, but I'm not I, I'm not really recommending it either, am I? I'm like, it's like a three-star head-scratcher. I'm not saying it's like really good, but uh, you're probably better equipped to assess it than I am. I'll find it. <laughs> uh, something that's a lot easier to digest, I watched um, Robot Dreams, which was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars this year, and it was the last of the nominees I hadn't seen that looked interesting to me. Um, it is very straightforward. It's dialogue free and it's, uh, about the friendship between a robot and a dog. Those dialogue free ones are so fun. Though. Yeah, it's cute. It's, it's got kind of like a faux sophisticated, like European bent to it. Um, the same way that like, I don't like the triplets of Belleville does or something. I was going to say like the triplets of Belleville. But you know, they're, they're kind of doing this like classical Jacques Tati or maybe like Charlie Chaplin style like vaudevillian humor where it's really easy to read the jokes, but in a way that still makes you feel like you're smart for following along. Um, I found it, if you can tell, uh, I'm kind of underselling it because it's been very highly praised and I found it kind of fine. You know, it was cute. It kind of reminded me of reading like the Sunday funnies, you know, like it's like mildly pleasant, but not, not very memorable. Basically there's this dog in 1980s, New York, who is like pays rent in an apartment and has a job, you know, it's not, it's not like someone's pet. Um, and the dog gets lonely enough that it or it mail orders a 
robot that you build to become your friend. And he builds the robot from the kit. And uh, kind of like Barbie and um, Poor Things, it's another like movie where a lot of the humor is like, it's the robot's first day alive. And it doesn't know how to interact socially. And that's like where a lot of the humor is, is the dog taking the robot to the park to go rollerblading and the robot not knowing the rules of how to interact with people without going overboard, you know? It's interesting to see all of those. It's like, uh, I think, you know, all of us coming out from our pandemic caves, not knowing what to do with ourselves as uh, influencing yeah. everything. I mean, now that you're saying that, I'm also thinking of uh, the, the children in um, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City were not very well socialized oh either. Oh my God, <laughs> I loved them. But yes, um, they were not. And then about, you know, right after the first act, once all like the warm, fuzzy friendship comedy is out of the way uh, the movie gets very sentimental the dog and the robot are separated and um the rest of the movie is them trying to regain companionship and uh it does become kind of weepy in a way where it's like kind of tugging at your heartstrings but in a way that like sometimes like i don't know the off family circus comic strip will get, suddenly get very like warmly nostalgic and sentimental instead of like being a goofy dad joke so I don't know if you if you want like an uncomplicated fun cartoon. I thought it was a pretty good movie. It wasn't like mind blowing or anything. Uh, I also saw Destroy All Neighbors on Shutter, which is a throwback to old school practical effects splat stick uh, along Tell the lines of like a Dead Alive or a Evil Dead kind of thing. Honestly, the movie it reminded me most of was Psycho Goreman. Tell me more. A movie I thought was <laughs> fine and Boomer really liked. <laughs> uh, it's it stars Jonah Ray, who's kind of a famous comedian guy from L.A. Um, he plays a prog rock musician in L.A. who's like I, struggling I, to make it, and by make it I mean finish his fucking album. He's like been working on this project for so long that it's become overcomplicated to the point where it's unlistenable. And instead of like actually doing the work. And like sitting down and finishing the album, he just blames everyone around him for distracting him. So he kind of like lashes out at his girlfriend and his boss and like the homeless guy outside his job who just wants free croissants. Like he just kind of like has all this built up rage for these minor distractions from his work when the problem is him, you know? And it escalates when Alex Winter, uh, speaking of Keanu Reeves in the 80s, um, of bill and ted fame um he's under a lot of prosthetics in this and speaks like the swedish chef a little bit he's got this like ridiculous nordic accent he moves into the apartment next door to jonah ray and blair's the worst euro trash edm you've ever heard all day and night and uh the musician eventually freaks out goes next door to confront his neighbor and accidentally kills him and then from there, it's like a dead alive situation. Like the body count spirals out of control, but the dead do not stay dead. They become these sort of like grotesque creatures. So like if someone becomes disemboweled by mistake, then their like intestines become a creature in itself with like a face that interacts with you, you know, or uh, if, if oh, a neighbor wow. burns to okay. death, they become this like talking skeleton with these like googly eyes and much like psycho Gorman. Uh, it all comes together where they basically form a prog rock band to help this guy finish his work. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't be a one-person prog rock band, <laughs> and that's 
why he's failing at this. You need like at least like five people, if not 20. And that's what the movie basically is. It's basically like, you know, there is an aspect to making art where it's like you have to huddle down and fully commit to this project that no one else believes in to get it done. You know, like you really have to believe in what you're doing in LA to ever make it. But also you kind of need collaborators and like people to, you know, play along with, and like, you can't shut everyone out and just be a total asshole to the world and expect to get anywhere. Um, and, and like through this violent outrage, this guy kind of learns to play along with people. It's just a shame that most of them are undead by the time he figures that out. It's very silly, if you can't tell. Uh, it's a very funny, over-the-top horror comedy. And if, if you're at all interested in prog music, uh, there's a lot of like loving monologues about making I, difficult I music. Love to be some good prog music. <laughs> he does watch these like YouTube clips that like um, convince him to go further into his dark mental spaces. Uh, but it's basically like this like prog rock how-to guitar lessons. Where the guy's like, if you make music that people get or enjoy, then you're a sellout and a failure. <laughs> so it, there's a lot of like prog rock in jokes like that. Yeah, it, it's a fun splatter comedy. But the movie I really want to recommend as like the jewel of January trash season, like the real winner of the bunch. Uh, and I think a movie that Allie would enjoy particularly was called The Beekeeper, starring Jason Statham. Yes, I saw the trailer for this. Uh, before Poor Things, and I was like, I would watch this. <laughs> it's great action schlock. Um, Jason Statham plays the beekeeper of the title, and the job description is both literal and figurative. Like, he is a literal beekeeper who keeps bees. <laughs> and uh, anytime at anyone asks him, like, who are you? Because, you know, he's Jason Statham and, like, kills people all the time. Yeah. He simply responds in a gruff voice, I keep bees. Uh, and there's like Incredible. tons of beekeeper puns throughout the movie like oh, uh, one of the villains yes. confronts him and says to be or not to be and Jason Statham responds Ooh. to be or uh, he talks a lot about like protecting the hive and like just nonsense you know uh, smoking out the hornets yeah. uh, that, that threaten the hive oh, my god but the other part of that title that's more figurative is that he is a retired super soldier from a deep state government agency known as the beekeepers uh, whose job it is to protect the hive and uh, weed out government conspiracy through ultraviolence. And the reason this is worth mentioning is because this is a conservative fantasy movie. I was going to say it looked like a conservative fantasy movie, but it also looked so ridiculous that I wasn't sure whether or not I'd be able to take the politics of it seriously. Well, so. All action movies, or like most good action movies, have rancid politics, and this is no exception. Yes. Like, we were recently yep. praising RRR, which is like nationalist yes. right-wing propaganda. But so was all the movies I grew up loving in the 80s. Like in the Reagan era, stuff like Rambo 2 or um, mm. Commando. Yeah. Rambo 1 is actually really a No, but Rambo so 2. It's funny that 2 is like, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard, I've heard. Actually, it's probably titled First Blood Part 2 Rambo. Yeah. Because <laughs> the titling of that series is insane. But like Commando is another like gruff muscle guy against the world, Reagan politics bullshit too. And it is one of my favorite movies ever made. Like it's just a total joy. 
because Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing an Austrian every man in the middle of America, uh, delivering puns at every opportunity he gets and just shooting people to death, which is exactly what Jason Statham does here. As big Arnie fans, we're used to it, I think. <laughs> well, this movie goes really over the top, though, where it's not ignorable. This is the kind of like news maxed out conspiracy brain mania. Uh, it's the kind of thing that like is the most popular show on CBS every week, but you've never heard of it because everyone at home is 80 years old and can't find the clicker and they like need to see what Jack Reacher's doing this week. Uh, so in this one, you know, Jason Statham is this like back to basics guy who um, kills his villains literally with like ratchet straps and pickup trucks. You know, he's like a very like rugged individual who uses the tools of the old world. And the villain of the piece that is robbing the old taxpayers of America, the, the poor, helpless elderly are being <laughs> attacked through phishing scams um, and having oh, their bank no, accounts Oh no, Tom Selleck's been warning me not to get a reverse mortgage. <laughs> yeah, it's that crowd. Uh, he's protecting them uh, from the crypto bros at the top. So like the villains all live in this world where they're like riding around in these like glass walled office spaces on skateboards. like from their espresso station to the sushi station to the masseuse that works in office. Like it's, it's really cruelly angry about youth culture, but in this like sort of made up, you know, us versus them, all the young kids have all this crypto money. And yet the poor old conservatives of America are left to rot with nothing. And he follows the conspiracy all the way to the top. And Josh Hutcherson plays a stand in for Hunter Biden. Oh my God. Sorry. I really like his like late in life humor career. Like, uh, I I think I've talked to y'all about how great I think the show future man is. So yeah, it's great. Here he's playing an allegory for Hunter Biden and it's not hidden or like, you know, obscured in any way. It's like, Oh, that's what this is. And uh, yeah. it's Jason Statham's job to kill Hunter Biden. And uh, it basically culminates in him with with him, like storming the Capitol as a one man army oh to take down this corrupt president's child. Uh, it is so evil, but delicious. Uh, all of the B puns are so funny. The action can be. It's not great. It's not like John Wick style, like throwbacks to Hong Kong action choreography even though it kind of steals the John Wick template of like the bad guys kill his bees. So he has to go avenge his bees. Yeah, that's a way better plot though. But we already have pig. Yeah. And there's pig as well. Um, which I referenced both of those movies in my review. Yeah. But you know, pig isn't John Wick either. You know, it's, it's got the same narrative template, but it's not even an action movie. It, well, it has its moments, but yeah, it's mostly just a sad John Wick, right? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen John Wick y'all. I know that's a problem, but I haven't. Uh, John Wick's fine. the The sequels are get increasingly better after the first one, but that's a lot of time investment because they also get increasingly longer after the first one. But yeah, the this one the action is like kind of more generic shoot 'em up material, uh, but it has a lot of delicious Jason Statham puns. Uh, he's not the Arnie replacement we would want, but maybe he's the one we deserve. And uh, yeah, it, it, he's doing a pretty good job of like keeping that tradition alive. And this is a very funny early release. Like I, it, this is the Megan of the month, not not Night Swim. This is the one that like opened the year with like a really goofy bang. Uh, and I, I would recommend it for its pure entertainment value.
basically, if you want to see a good bank robbery picture, this is the picture you're looking for. It has what you want in that kind of a picture. It has a great good guy and a great bad guy. Neither one is boring or one-dimensional. It has a neat way they get the money. It has a love affair that's romantic and poignant and kinky, whatever you want. And at the end, it's got a really unprepared for a twist. I mean, what happens in the last 10 minutes of the movie is mm -hmm. delicious. So I enjoyed it. I don't know why it's been neglected. Well, what happened, I think, is that the film company that had the picture, it did not do so well in box offices in the first couple of cities that mm -hmm. it played in. So they think, well, the whole country won't like it. Well, this part of the country likes it. <laughs> it's being responded to by critics all over the country, I think. This is a film for people to see. If they get behind it, if you support it, it can play for a long time, I think, in any city in the country. Okay, now how you're going to know it is it's called Silent Partner. <laughs> it stars Elliot Gould, and the ad is going to be very small and says for one week only. So for this episode of the Lanyap podcast, which you can always find on swampflix.com. I love doubling down on the branding like this. This is great. <laughs> well, you know, we talk about this from time to time, but when we don't communicate for a while, I'll go back and listen to our old episodes. And... It is funny how infrequently we brand like the site that we're on and how I, I'm trying to do your specific cadence for it when I do it now, too. <laughs> I'm glad you've noticed that I've been trying to do that more lately because, uh, yeah, I just forget that this is like a product that we put out in the world all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this week we're talking about The Silent Partner, a movie from 1978. It is a Canadian film starring Elliot Gould as Miles Cullen a bank teller who seizes upon the opportunity to use an upcoming bank robbery uh, that he has gained some knowledge of to actually perform his own robbery and give the thief, played by Christopher Plummer, uh, as a Santa, a mall Santa. Um, actually, I guess he's more of like a, he's a fake Salvation Army Santa. Yeah. Details. I really hope that he like is skimming money. Like the all the money that goes into that Salvation Army like is also going to him. Oh, there there's like, absolutely <laughs> no way that he is a sanctioned Salvation Army Santa. There's there's I, no way. Yeah. Um yeah, Christopher Palmer, he's a he's a Santa. He Elliot Gould realizes that he is going to rob the bank because he finds a carbon copy of a bank slip that was intended to be used as a like give me all the money note before the guy backed out and there's a similarity between um the way that this uh note has the letter g written and the g on the santa sign so he's also his life is complicated by the fact that he has feelings for his co-worker julie who is currently involved in an affair with their bank manager boss so he he does manage to get some money out of this attempted robbery, and then things get more complicated as the sort of cat and mouse plays out. While the bank robber, the bank robber Christopher Plummer, who got away, uh, becomes angrier and angrier that he didn't get more money, and now he has to be on the run. And then you know, Elliot Gould, Miles Cullen meets a lovely new young woman um, who may be more than she lets on. Uh, what did y'all think of this one? Well, at first I was a little miffed that we were watching Christmas content off season. Yeah, that was not my intent. <laughs> Which I got over very quickly because the movie's very good. Yeah. And it moves to springtime pretty quickly, too. It does, yeah. It reminded me a lot of Black Christmas in that it is a exploitation of the 1970s vintage cheapo right. thriller in a way. Um, it's just like impressively mean in the same way that Black Christmas is. 
Oh my gosh. Where yes. you kind of alternate between this like 70s AM gold, like warmth safety feeling where it's like. It's this like big old, like kind of Columbo episode vibe, but then like, oh, it gets, it's great. Yeah, and then it, it'll <laughs> swerve very harshly into some of the most upsetting, like vicious images and sounds that you've seen in a movie in a while. But much like Black Christmas, a lot of that's also delivered via phone call. Uh, you have yeah. Christopher mm-hmm. Plummer hanging outside Ellie Gould's apartment from a payphone. So even though they're having this like really icy back and forth cat and mouse game, they're doing it with this uh, partitioned distance between them, uh, which only increases as Elliot Gould outsmarts him a few times. You know they're separated by the partition of the bank counter, uh, and then Elliot Gould also lands Christopher Plummer in jail temporarily to buy him some time. So there's also the partition in jail as well. Yeah, the scene with the two-way glass when he's in the lineup. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah, there's like this mediated um, confrontation between the two of them, and then every now and then that yeah, you're just like waiting for the glass to break to see what'll happen. Yeah, every but, now and then yeah. that's that veneer of safety is broken and christopher Plummer breaks through and he is absolutely fucking terrifying every time it happens i was i was gonna say there were a couple of times i was like captain von trap <laughs> what are you doing he's so scary in this uh i love this movie myself i this was one that i found out about i had never heard of it and last year i was watching a lot of old episodes of at the movies um with siskel and ebert and every single episode had this same formula where the first two movies that they talked about was normally like, oh, yeah, that, those are movies that I've heard of or I remember hearing the title of and people talking about at the time or, or later. And then one movie that you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that one. It's like an obscure thing that sometimes pops up on cable late at night. And usually a fourth movie that you've never heard of because it's just like disappeared into the sands of time. And that was the case for The Silent Partner. And this normally I mostly agree with uh, Roger, but on this one, I I agreed with Gene. Gene really loved this one and uh, was really upset about like, you know, not upset, but appreciated the discomfort that comes from people fighting over what is like really not a lot of money. Like it, it's, it's a fair amount of money, but like the kind of, not the kind of money that you would go to these like murderous links for. But you I mean, know. the movie does deal with that, though, right? Like they're kind of fantasizing about what they would do with the payout, and he has these sort of like reasonable dreams. Like <laughs> it's enough money to start his life over, but not make it easy forever. Yeah. And like the ways that he does something with that opportunity are all very like guarded. Like he he hides the money in the bank um, instead right. of like hiding it. Out He's of his like because everybody's like, "What would you do with it?" He's like, "I, I put, put it, it in, in the, the bank." bank. That's the best. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I'm talking about like plumber's depravity. Like, oh yeah, the, oh, the links yeah, that his God. character will go to because there is this movie has a shockingly violent giallo scene very close to the yes. end of it that I was like, "Oh my God!" I like. Yeah. You're right to talk about the like AM Gold '70s feel, and then like the occasional like shocking, like horrifying like just the icy knife of Christopher Plummer's phone calls. But that scene of violence is really. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, there's two, right? There's the fish tank one that you're referring to. Yeah. And then in the first act, there's the one in the sauna at the gym. The one where he went to jail for like, that's the crime he went to jail for. I thought. Right. And that one, that one cuts away before it gets too bad. 
is my is my remembrance. It cuts back though to the yeah. It cuts back to the aftermath. Yes, yes. yes. I think at a certain point, if you want to talk about like motivations for the money, like whether or not it's enough for them to be going back and forth this way, I think it stops being about the money at a certain point. Especially for Plummer, he's just a sociopath, and. There's a lot of focus on this, like, kind of psychosexual energy between the two men. Um, you, you refer yes. to his <laughs> new partner um, after he kind of strikes out with Susanna York at the bank. Um, there's this, like, sophisticated Euro temptress who, like, uh, enters his life mysteriously. Yeah, this, like, weird femme fatale. Yeah, and Plummer is thing. using her as this, like, go between um, where it's, like, I mean, to reference a movie um, by someone that Elliot Gould was once married to, it's kind of like this Yentl situation where they have this avatar where they're basically fucking each other through this like third party. And there's this Uh, one really brilliant piece of blocking that blew my mind where the the third wheel in that threesome um, visits Christopher Plummer in jail. And she is talking to him through the plexiglass and she folds her arms flat on the table. And this is right after she confronted Elliot Gould. Like, you fucked both of us. You fucked him through me. Uh, she, like, says this very explicitly. And then she's visiting Chris- Christopher Plummer in jail. And her reflection takes the exact same shape as his body. But the plexiglass cuts off at his neck. So you see Christopher Plummer's head on top of her very buxom reflection. And they accentuate yeah. it by having him touch his chest and like do these things that are like drawing attention to the fact that he has like this yeah, male head on this of, female like, form. Coded villain weirdness that goes. Yeah, on and here. I guess I don't want to spoil the twist where that culminates. It's it's a very trashy uh, payoff to that, but the way it was yeah. foreshadowed in the blocking of that scene, I thought was like I- either accidentally brilliant or like pure like just genius filmmaking. I, I don't really care which one it is. Cause yeah. the effect is the same. Yeah. There's a lot of that. You're right. That like psychosexual back and forth between them. It drives I mean, a lot it, of the movie. The initial clue for me was like when he like is first shown and like, he takes off the Santa suit and he's wearing like a mesh tank top. And I'm like, no straight. <laughs> never worn a mesh tank top ever. Also when, even when he's wearing the like Santa disguise, he has like alarmingly gorgeous eyelashes. I don't know if they like did like yes, yes my viewing up. companion pointed that out too. I was like thinking he was wearing a lot of mascara, but I wasn't sure. Either way, <laughs> it's just like really pretty yeah. eyes for someone so creepy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I just really like that. Like the motivation stops being about the money, except like for Elliot Gould, it's like um the money is his opportunity to be interesting. So like uh you know without the money he's just a guy who loves exotic fish he's He's just super hot elliot gould with a fish tank (laughs) who plays chess oh who could ever fall for him (laughs) i mean it worked on barbara he's less than the sum of his parts i that line killed me i was like okay okay I guess fish guy isn't cool enough. Sorry. I think she was kind of, uh, that's Susanna York saying that to the young blonde who started working yeah. at the bank. I think yeah. she's kind of throwing her off the trail. Cause she's kind of holding Elliot Gould in the back burner. Like she kind of rejects his sexual advances, but 
not completely. It's like, oh, I could see yeah. this happening if he stops being such a dork. <laughs> She's just kind of waiting for him to transform into a mm. cool guy. I read it a little yeah, differently. I, I read it as, and I, I did not care for her as much because I read her as stringing him along until she got bored with the boss. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. He was yeah. her option B. Mm. I didn't think anybody in this was likable, but that was okay. Oh, yeah. Like, it's one of those movies where all of these characters are terrible and I love yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't need to like I, I I'm not a, I'm not the same person that I was 15 years ago. I don't need to like even one character to enjoy the movie. Although I did like Elliot Gould. I like him and I like both of his sexual partners. I like that the obvious femme fatale character is just very straight up. He's so straightforward. Yeah, it's great. It's very funny like the way that she just very explicitly says things that um would be a hidden character motivation. But um, the power dynamics between them keep flipping in a way that makes it like a fun, sexy game, uh, even yeah. though either of them could die playing it at any time because Christopher Plummer is such a hot wire. Um, and I, I thought Susanna York was like, you know, maybe not um, ethically <laughs> cultivating this sexual relationship with him, but like she's intrigued but doesn't like that yeah. about it. Like, like, It's not that I dislike them. I'm just saying like, None of them are like outstanding individuals, and that's fine. Like, I don't know. I think it's the same way in which, you know, looking at what was going on in the era and like, you know, being economically misfortune, like, it's relatable to take advantage of the situation and just be like, he's Robin LeBanc. I could work with that. Well, she's she's waiting for him to become like an active participant in his life and not just a guy yeah, yeah. who collects fish and works the bank counter. Like yeah. the whole movie is her testing him, trying to wait for him to stop being a dork. She did not like it when it was turned back on her though, and I found that very no. funny. When yeah, it was really good. He was like, Yeah, I'll bang you after the Christmas party, and then he was like, Nah, actually. It's and she did not like her medicine when it was given back to her, and I did enjoy that quite a bit. Uh, I would say that happens, but at a different point, like he doesn't have sex with her after the Christmas party, but it's because they're interrupted by threats from Christopher Plummer. Right. But from, from her perspective, all that happened was that he got her riled up and then was like, bye. And she's done that to him many times. I don't think she has. She has not let him on at any point. Okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) She has not gotten him hard and walked away. But he did that to her without explaining himself, and she was confused. And he keeps giving her these mixed signals because he is like very interested in her, but he keeps backing off in like a cold sweat. I was gonna say he keeps dealing with absolute nonsense. Like that is very funny. But what she doesn't like is seeing him with another woman at the wedding. Yes. Uh, and that's when she gets her a taste of her own medicine. It's like, oh, he's free to be with other people. He's not just waiting around for me like a puppy dog. I, I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't abide this. Yeah, no, I I just meant, like, they're not good people in the same way that, like, and I say this, once again, fully loving and uh, appreciating all of it. Uh, The same way, like, the family from Parasite aren't good people. Like, they're working in their situation in, like, the greatest, smartest way, and I don't trust any of them at all. (laughs) Well, they're they're ordinary people, and I think that's kind of the whole point. It's like a fantasy of, like, what would I do if I was, like working this kind of go nowhere job in a fucking mall and i had an yeah. opportunity to like make Banking away with a, a ton of cash you know yeah 
Uh, and even like the a lot of the focus of the movie is on the like sort of ordinariness of their surroundings, like mm-hmm. the the novelty of the bank as a location is really exploited in every way you they can figure it. Like there's yes. a lot of stuff with like a lot of business with like safety deposit boxes and the uh, the buxom blonde that is hired in the office wears a lot of like bank pun sexual innuendo t-shirts. Yeah, her innuendo bank sweatshirts. I love. <laughs> yeah, about pulling Very out, into it. and bankers do it with interest. Penalty for early withdrawal. Penalty for yeah. early withdrawal. That's the one. And she marries John Candy, which I don't think we've mentioned yet that he's in this movie. Yeah, he is. Well, it is Canadian, so. <laughs> but it, it's a small role, and you kind of, I don't know, as much as like everybody in this uh, movie is just kind of like sleeping with each other and nobody's faithful like you still kind of think it's kind of cute that they get married personally <laughs> yeah she you know she gave into the one sleaze ball in the office oh we got to talk about the sleaze ball he's so sleazy yeah believably so you know yeah, yeah but he's he's so gross in a movie full of sleazy people <laughs> he's just like takes the cake he's never not gross that man does not know how to have a conversation that doesn't contain innuendo. Like he is completely unprepared to like discuss anything that's not phallic or wet. He's in a William Shatner, you know, whore in a leisure suit kind of mode. Very believable seventies archetype. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Elliot Gould, like you were saying earlier, like to the audience is very attractive because he's not that he's not sleazy. You know, there is something noble about him living this tidy little life in his apartment and following the rules and playing with his fish. Uh, the second he's given the opportunity to break out of that pattern, he starts fantasizing about what his life could be instead. But I mean, but I mean, to us, he's a tall, handsome man with like this cute smirk. Yeah, I'm a simple girl. His tall is very tall and his voice is very deep. And I'm, you know, that's yeah. enough. I do. I do sort of love that. um he is he doesn't think that his fish are imprisoned until it's pointed out to him. I thought it was like a life versus like living sort of thing, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. True. He's not going to the Caribbean to experience like real life beauty firsthand. He's like taking these little pieces of the Caribbean back to his apartment and like fantasizing yeah. about it. Yeah. I um I really appreciated the insight into 70s era bank alarms. That was yeah. fun. And how they work. And you know, yeah. I, I was there was so much in this movie that I was like, if you were under 30, would how much of this would make sense? Do you know what a safe deposit box is? A payphone. A payphone. Oh, what blew me away on that an electric circuit. Was like once the <sighs> alarm was triggered, there's like actual security footage, but this is before video. Yes. So it's all like real to real film. <laughs> yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. I yeah. I loved that. I loved this this mall, this mall of Toronto yes. that the bank is in. It seems it seems like my friend, you know, we were watching it and you know, the people are lined up to get into the bank when it opens. And he was like, cause that he was like, could that have ever been real? And I was like, I mean, yeah, because you yes. know that used to be how you had to get your money. They needed to get their cash so they could go spend it at the mall or whatever, you know? You didn't have ATMs everywhere. Like, that's what you had to do. I think if this movie has any, like, cultural longevity for people who aren't watching every single episode of Siskel and Ebert at the movies, <laughs> um, 
it's going to be twofold. It's like looking at sort of like novelty bank heist films. Cause this is not, this is not like a very straightforward bank heist movie. The sort of cat and mouse yeah. game between the two men is a little different than most bank robber films. Like this is in Bonnie and Clyde, you know? And then the other thing would be, you know, it's a earlier writer credit for Curtis Hansen who had like a pretty prolific career. M- most notably, I think later on with like LA confidential and eight mile, but uh, throughout the seventies up until his death, he like did a lot of really good kind of straightforward thrillers. Um, and this might be like his meanest and most streamlined. Yeah, it's definitely streamlined and, there's just something like satisfying about it only taking place in like a few lo- locations. Like the important action scenes are all surrounded either in his apartment or in the bank. Everything else is just noise as far as the action is concerned. Like, yes, it's there's important stuff like his dad dying and stuff. But uh, yeah, everything else is just kind of, you know, secondary. So yeah, I, I do think it's like a really tight, like, mean 70s action movie time capsule and i i i don't know really appreciate that and it gets really tense like that that sequence with the uh safety deposit box um, oh my gosh yeah the multiple layers of people not being able to say what they actually want in that scene while other people Mm -hmm. are watching uh is very tense yeah and christopher Plummer's nowhere to be seen in that that moment that's just like pure bank heist yeah tension yeah yeah what do you think was in that safety deposit box that that woman came for? I'm really curious. I, I know that that's not the point of what this movie is, but like, I really don't know what you would keep in a safety deposit box that you would go and then you would open it for a couple of minutes and just like look at it and then leave. So you're referring to a sequence after the initial bank heist and Elliot mm-hmm. Gould has been on television um, and everyone yeah. has seen how tall and handsome and cute he is. And I see where you're going with this. He's suddenly excited yeah. about his presence at the bank. Yeah. And people like, are oh, coming in just to see him. <laughs> and the safety deposit box sequence at that time is like an excuse for this woman to be alone in a tight space with him. Yes. Okay. She even photographed really well. I think she yeah. was just wasting his time. Oh, you're right. Because she did, she did come to see him at the counter. And then yeah. he was like, I need to be relieved. And then suddenly she yeah. needed to get into her safety deposit box. You're right. Okay. You're right. I see it. For some reason, I had it in my mind that she went to that safety deposit box to get a necklace. Um, I guess maybe part of that was like the shape of the box itself. And then she was like, okay, I'm good. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> you're not going to take it with you? Even though I have no reason to believe she had a necklace in there other than that my brain is broken. Yeah, once again, just all of these ladies flirting with him is just, it's great. Would you be any less likely to fuck somebody that you found attractive, but you found out that they kept expensive fish at their apartment? Um, I can tell you from experience it didn't change the outcome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would expect that would not be a deal breaker for most people. It's so weird to me that that's such an exotic hobby. I mean, I guess for... 78 and in canada it is like a pretty obscure like hobby or like a a thing for a man to spend his money on to get like tropical fish which are a whole like nation away it's not very macho i guess oh i see you know oh i guess so i mean i got mixed feelings about aquariumists how many aquariums are we talking i guess is the question he had one very sensible fish tank yeah, he had a bunch in there though, and he wanted to get a lionfish. 
He wanted an oscillating puffer fish. That's yeah. that's right. An <laughs> oscillating puffer fish. No, I mean my my thinking is like if it's more than he had, then I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. There's too many fish. My stepdad had a period when I was a kid where he had like the one tank inside with like his beloved anemone and like um, angelfish and clownfish and all that. And then he had separate tanks in the garage where he would like breed and sell fish. It's like a like um, side hustle outside of his normal job. Okay. Uh, apologies to my mom for revealing this part of her sketchy past, but my mom totally, uh, definitely bred and sold fish so she could buy a pot. So, <laughs> oh my god, you guys, I have news about my parents. Also, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to fit in. Well, like because of that, fish were like the one pet I was allowed to have as a kid. So I had like a freshwater oh. tank in my room as a child as well. Um. There were many reasons why I was unfuckable. Yeah, like I was going to say, I I definitely <laughs> had fish as a small child, so I get it. Um, and then later I found out why. But, you know, on top of all that, it's just like, <laughs> there's so many worse things men could be into. Yes. Like, you could get back to his apartment and find out he's, like, really into World War II in a way that's, like, concerning, oh, you know? no. Or, you know, et cetera. Like, there's so many worse things, like, yeah. than him staring at a fish tank. Like, pretty harmless male hobby i think yeah hanging around at a sauna beating up teenage girls yeah christopher Plummer has much worse hobbies than this yeah he definitely does oh it seems like all he does is seethe <laughs> i think it's safe to say we all recommend this movie right do you recommend uh, like saving it for christmas season when you like want something kind of cruel and not schmaltzy or do you like want to say You'll get over the Christmas aspect of it pretty quickly. <laughs> I will say, if you're going to save it for Christmas, don't let it be like where you start your Christmas season with. Go ahead no. and watch a couple of things that are like sweet and saccharine. And then when you start to get kind of like sick of that and sick of like going into every store and hearing Christmas carols, then watch this one. Yes. And then watch Black Christmas right after and yes. then never use a landline again. The best things in life are free. And give them to the birds and bees. I want money.